if you let go of just the mythic version, the belief system, then you're going to have rounds and rounds of hellacious purgatory, or you're going to be cast into hell for all eternity. And so that stops your capacity to be open and to explore other ways of looking at your religion. I am Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. I can't even do justice in introducing Ken Wilber. All I can say is this. This man is perhaps the world's most important living philosopher. He's written 25 books translated into 30-plus languages. Bill Clinton has quoted him. Tony Robbins has spoken about his theories on stage at major events like Date with Destiny. Ken Wilber has influenced more lives in terms of how they think about the world than anyone else alive today. And that's why this man is kind of a legend. So I've had maybe four to five hours of deep conversations with Ken Wilber, where we've explored topics that have huge meaning in the world today, from education to religion to politics. What makes Ken so interesting is his high-powered intellect. See, Ken doesn't tell you what to think. What he shows you are frameworks for understanding the world. How do you decide if a particular concept in a religious book is powerful or dangerous? How do you look at redesigning the modern education system? How do you answer questions such as why do some great leaders like Martin Luther King or Gandhi create so much love but also generate hate to the point where they get assassinated? Ken Wilber gives you frameworks for understanding the world today in different dimensions. And this is really what makes him so special. In Ken's own words, he's driving towards a genuine theory of everything that helps to enrich and deepen every field through an understanding of exactly how and where each one fits in relation to all others. Through the integral approach, we reveal the previously unseen possibilities for a better, more compassionate, and more sustainable future for all of us. That's a deep quote, but let me tell you what Ken is saying. Firstly, through Ken's approach of integral theory, he is helping elevate human consciousness to what is called the integral level. Now, you'll learn more about this when you listen to this, these interviews. The second thing he's doing is a unifying theory of everything. How do we fit it all in from ecology to biology to consciousness? How do all of these things fit in? And the third thing is helping us see the unseen. There are patterns about the world today in terms of how religion is evolving, in terms of how politics is advancing, in terms of your own spiritual development, that if you can see these patterns and see them in clear frameworks, it gives you visibility, tools, and wisdom to make better decisions and to guide your own growth. I guess that's really all I can say about Ken because the depth of his knowledge is so vast, no intro would really do him justice. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Vishen Lakhiani, and with me is Ken Wilber. Ken Wilber is the most cited living academic in America today with his books that have been translated in some 25 different languages. And if you're a fan of Ken, you're going to love our conversation today. Ken, how are you? Oh, uh, wonderful, my friend. Uh, delightful to be here with you again and um, very much looking forward to our conversation. 
So, Ken, today we're going to be talking about a number of different topics. We'll be right. talking about four huge, huge, huge areas which are of concern to pretty much almost everyone, I guess we would know. The first one is going to be God and religion. And we'll be answering some tough questions, intricate questions on the nature of God, the nature of religion. Then we're going to go on to right. personal growth in the second part of this interview. And we're going to be asking, answering questions on the nature of enlightenment, meditation, the idea of our thoughts influencing our reality. Then we're going to go on to education. And we'll be talking about how human education needs to grow, to evolve. What would the future of education look like? And finally, we'll be addressing world issues that we live in today, from sure. conflicts between countries to um, states, um, uh, situations happening in particular countries, to right. how populists um, relate to their leaders, such as Obama and Putin. It's going to be right. controversial, but interesting. So, yes. Ken, let's get started on the first bit. Our first question is on the future of religion. The essence of the question is, where is religion headed? In the next 50 years, do you see it slowly dying into nothing more than mere mythology or will it remain as strong as it is right now? And what about regions of the world like the Islamic world where religion is enforced by law? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, well, what we have um, to keep in mind here is that um, there are several different components of religion and several different aspects to religion. And the problem when people generally have a discussion about religion or spirituality is they don't make these distinctions. And they really are quite different. They're, they're very different aspects of human growth and development. So in terms of the fundamental components of spirituality, both of them show development, but both of them are very different. The first version is the growth of the spiritual line through some basic six to eight major developmental growth levels. What these six to eight levels are is if you look at developmental psychology itself, it has probably about upwards of two dozen different models. And each of them vary in uh, a lot of different ways. But the vast majority of them agree that all human beings have between around six to eight major levels of growth and development. And of course, this is starting at birth and moving through childhood and uh, adolescence and early adulthood and late adulthood and uh, elderhood and so on. But there's a, a remarkable agreement about these six to eight major developmental levels of growth. And so when we look at spirituality, and there's actual empirical evidence on this, we find that spirituality itself in something that's often called spiritual intelligence, or how we think about spirit, or how we talk about spirit, um, how we picture God or goddess, that that spiritual intelligence itself develops through these six to eight major levels. And so that's one item that we have to look at and see how that's going to turn out in the future. But then there's another aspect of 
spirituality. And it's not the aspect of growing up. This aspect is called waking up. Now, waking up is what we traditionally associate with meditation schools of development like Zen or Vedanta or Christian mystics or Sufism or Kabbalah. It's it's not simply a, a how we intellectualize about spirit or how we think about spirit or how we describe spirit. It's direct spiritual experiences. And this component is said to go through a series also of stages, in this case, generally meditation stages. And it starts at the small end of the spectrum when human consciousness is identified with just the small ego or the separate self-sense or the self-contraction, something like that. And then it expands through uh, a larger self and a higher self and finally into a total unity consciousness, a oneness with spirit and the entire world, what the Sufis call the supreme identity. And this is often called things like enlightenment, awakening, metamorphosis, satori, moksha, and so on. So we have these two uh, fundamental types of um, spirituality. And what we have to do is examine where they are in today's world. And generally in the West, religion faces two major problems. One is at a relatively low level or stage of spiritual growing up. It's mostly still stuck at a stage called mythic literal. Now, if we look at these six to eight stages of general growth and development in the path of growing up, these have been given different names and they have different needs, different values, different motivations, different ethics, and so on. But one series of names was that given to it by Gene Gebser, And those names for these levels go from archaic to magic to mythic to rational to pluralistic to integral. And each of these stages is a higher, broader, wider sense of identity. So these can be condensed as going from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to cosmocentric. Egocentric means I'm just identified with myself and I care only for myself and am concerned only with myself. And that's the earliest stage. Then the next stage is ethnocentric. Here, my identity expands to a group. So it can expand to a family, a clan, a tribe, a nation, a particular political party, a particular religion, something like that. But it has a special emphasis on us versus them. And that's a very strong distinction because us, particularly when we look at this in terms of religious growing up, us means the chosen people. Us means those who are saved. Us means those who are favored by God. Us means those who have the one true 
God, the one true Lord, the one true divine reality. And them are all the infidels, the unbelievers, the disbelievers, those who are bound for hell and damnation. And so that's ethnocentric. Then when we move to world-centric, we expand our identity again, not just from a group of people, but to all people. So we find an identity not just with some humans, but with all humans, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. And so this is a huge expansion of identity and starts to look at the human race in terms of what we all have in common. And when this first emerged historically in places like the Western Enlightenment, then a whole new morality developed, which was referred to as the universal rights of man. In other words, all humans had certain inalienable rights, not just Catholics, not just Jews, not just Hindus, not just Buddhists, but all humans had rights. And so there is an identity with all of humanity. And then, of course, it can expand into what we call cosmocentric. And that generally means an identity, not just with all humans, but with all sentient beings, with life itself in its broadest sense. Now, so as we were saying, right now in the West, religion faces two major problems. One is that it's at a relatively low level or stage of spiritual growing up. It's still mostly stuck at the mythic literal stage. Now, that stage means that, for example, um, it comes after the magic stage. The magic stage is things like voodoo. So in voodoo, you make a doll representing a person you stick a pen in the doll, and it magically hurts the real person. Or magic is a rain dance. You do a particular ritual, and it forces nature to rain. Many sects who believe in magic have things like snake charming. And they believe, if they're, they're Christians, for example, that if you're a true Christian, then you can handle a snake, and the snake magically won't bite you. And by the way, one of the leaders of the largest of these sects recently just died of a rattlesnake bite. That's pure magic. But as that egocentric magic expands into ethnocentric mythic, that's where most religion in the West is stuck. And so it means that you really do believe that Moses parted the Red Sea, and you really do believe that Elijah went straight to heaven while he was still alive in his chariot, and you really do believe that Lot's wife was turned into a sack of salt, and you really do believe that God rained locusts down on the Egyptians, and so on. These are myths that are taken to be literally true. And fundamentalists of virtually any religion believe that the myths in their religious texts are absolutely true. Now, the problem is that this was a fine way to think about 2,000 years ago 
when humanity itself was still at the mythic literal stage. But as human development and evolution continued, we moved into rational stages and from there into postmodern pluralistic stages and just recently into integral or holistic or unified stages. And we're still stuck in our religious beliefs back with this mythic literal approach. And so most modern educated Westerners increasingly find that these beliefs are just impossible to believe anymore. And as a matter of fact, only 11% of Northern Europeans are churched. 11%. The other problem has to do with the waking up component of spirituality. This would be the component where we find enlightenment or awakening or the great liberation. Most Western religion has virtually no version of waking up. Not anymore. But waking up is indeed the central core and and a true heart of spirituality. It's finding enlightenment or awakening and discovering that you're absolutely one with spirit itself and one with the entire cosmos. Again, what the Sufis call the supreme identity. Christianity started out drenched in waking up with spiritual experiences all over the place. But as the church took increasing control. It trusted these types of mystical experiences less and less. The church felt that, quote, no one comes to salvation save by way of Mother Church. And spiritual experiences have a nasty habit of going straight from God to you bypassing the church. So increasingly, Christianity became a mere belief system. You profess belief in the mythic, literal notions of the Bible, and you're pronounced saved due to live life eternal in heaven with God. So there was no real spiritual enlightenment or awakening or true waking up anymore. There was just spiritual growing up and then only to a very low and rather mediocre level of growing up, usually magic or right around mythic literal. The combination of these two problems, low growing up and almost no waking up, has increasingly made religion in the West less and less believable. And if this doesn't change, there seems to be little hope for this type of religion in the future. It will only appeal to individuals at lower levels of development, at magic and mythic, and not to individuals at rational, pluralistic, integral, or higher. Already a very large number of people are saying, quote, I'm spiritual, but not religious, meaning they're open to genuine spiritual experience, but they don't believe those mythic, literal beliefs anymore. I would just finish that by saying if both of those components were handled more adequately, if spiritual growing up started to include stages beyond the mythic so that we had rational religion 
like the Jesus seminars, pluralistic religion, such as the postmodern Bible, and integral religion, which is just starting, number one. And then number two, if waking up was reintroduced into the practice of religion so people could have an actual taste of spiritual experience and a oneness with God or goddess, that would change everything. They would no longer be embarrassed by having to say things like they believe Moses really did part the Red Sea. And more important, they would get a chance to experience spirit directly, immediately, and for themselves in direct states of waking up, which would change their lives profoundly and make spirituality a crucial component of their lives. And I believe if both of those changes occur, increase the level of spiritual growing up and introduce the practice of waking up, spirituality would become a central feature of the world tomorrow and none too soon. So there we go. That's a beautiful answer, Ken. It's, uh, it's ex- extremely detailed and a beautiful answer. Now, my question is, if people are moving more from ethnocentric beliefs to world-centric and even cosmocentric beliefs, and if we as a world are moving towards more rational and pluralistic ideals, and eventually, as you said, integral, what then becomes of Islam, of Christianity, of Judaism? What will that start to coalesce or look like? Well, what we have found is that by looking at the all of these major ingredients in overall human growth and development, ingredients that we've called, for example, growing up, waking up, and we would add sort of psychotherapeutic work on like shadow work and taking care of you know our unconscious material and problems there uh which we sometimes call cleaning up we find and there are examples right now in every major world religion there are examples of individuals combining their traditional waking up practices which most of them still have access to combining that with modern understanding of growing up and cleaning up. And when this happens, there's an extraordinary change in how people look at religion. Because all of a sudden, it's no longer just professing beliefs that when they were written, people really did believe the earth was flat. They really did believe that slavery was a natural condition It's the way things were. It wasn't even really questioned. It really did believe that women were second-class citizens, if citizens at all. And a lot of the ethical and moral and spiritual beliefs of of 2,000 years ago have simply changed. Humanity has continued to grow and evolve. And so if we include some of these new developments including an understanding of growing up, which is only about 100 years old. Developmental psychology was only discovered 100 years ago. And if we include cleaning up, which is also only about 100 years ago, going back to, say, somebody like Sigmund Freud, if we can include those in religion, then we have examples in Islam, in Judaism, in Buddhism, 
in Christianity, in other major world religions, that this changes everything. All of a sudden, they don't feel any conflict between their religion and the modern and postmodern world. Whereas if you're a religious believer now, then you're constantly at war with science. You're constantly at war with modern discoveries. You're constantly at war with modern changes in ethics, including whether women should be priests, uh, whether homosexuals should be allowed in churches, uh, and so on. And so even some of the more difficult religions, like Islam, there are individuals that are moving themselves into higher stages of growing up. And so their identities are becoming wider and wider, even up to integral stages of development. And at that point, they start to take this holistic view. They start to include all of these factors in their spiritual practices. And that really changes everything. So it kind of goes back to what I just said, that if we can manage to pull off integral spirituality for the future, then that's going to actually have an important role to play in the future. If we can't do that, it's going to become increasingly embarrassing, increasingly outmoded, and increasingly irrelevant. That's a very direct statement, Ken. And I appreciate the one thing I love about listening to you is that every question leads to more questions. You just (laughs) asked me 10 additional questions that I'd love to ask. But but rather than do that, what I want to do is ask a couple of questions that came in from our listeners. So Zenek from Warsaw asked this, and it's an interesting question. She said, every religion is based on the teachings of one master, but has of course been corrupted through the generations true translation and words being handed down from generation to generation. How do we discover the original source of that truth? Right. So let's remember the two components of spirituality that we just discussed, growing up and waking up. Growing up is how our, how we think about spirit, so-called spiritual intelligence. And waking up is how we directly experience spirit. And so how we have enlightenment, awakening, moksha, great liberation experiences. Waking up is core, and it tends to be the one that has been really slowly forgotten in a fair number of religions, certainly in Christianity and certainly in Islam, and you can argue in other religions as well. The reason is that as organized religion grew up around the original spiritual insights It increasingly looked at them in terms of belief systems, not direct and immediate experiences, since individual experiences were less and less trusted. Remember, direct spiritual experiences tended to go straight from God right to the individual, bypassing the church. The same reason oil companies don't like solar energy goes straight from the sun to you, bypassing the oil companies. So they don't like it. And the church didn't like mystical experiences. And pretty soon from Paul saying, let this consciousness be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, that we all may be one. That was part of the early waking up experience of Christians. But within three centuries 
all of a sudden, you were no longer allowed to be one with Jesus Christ. You were no longer allowed to be one with God. Only Jesus was allowed to be one with God. And so religion started switching away from waking up and over to growing up, where it just worked with belief systems or what you believe. And so if you profess belief that Jesus is the one and only Son of God and is your personal Savior, all you have to do is say that. You don't have to have an enlightenment experience. You don't have to experience Christ consciousness. You don't have to do any of the things that original religion was put there for. You just sign a sort of legal document saying, yeah, I believe all this. And and that's that's it. And so as a lot of the religions went forward, they increasingly, the waking up component got left out more and more and more. And just the growing up component at a particularly low level, just magic or the mythic level, started to be emphasized. So that direct experience of let this consciousness be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, that we all may be one. That's a direct experience. But over the years, it became just a belief that Jesus was Lord and the one and only Son of God. And that is what you were supposed to do, simply learn and agree with that story. Not directly experience spirit, directly experience being one with Christ discovering your own true Christ consciousness. So the original experience tends to be lost and is replaced with mere belief systems, which are part of the growing up components of humans, not the waking up components. You get this back by reintroducing waking up. You take up something like centering prayer or the prayer of the heart or meditation or contemplation, and you cultivate not just beliefs, but direct experiences in the divine. And that's how you get back to the great origin of the religion. Virtually all of the great religions had founders who had those waking up experiences, and nearly all their earlier followers did as well. But it was indeed fairly common, as Zenik says, that this original understanding tended to be lost. But the practices of waking up are still available, and they can still be practiced, and that's what needs to happen. Beautifully said, Ken. This other listener turned in this question, and I'd love to see how you would answer it. Sure. He said, how do I explain to my parents that I've evolved past the religion I was raised in without stepping on toes, hurting feelings, or sounding judgments? They're taking it really personal. Well, (laughs) this is one of the problems with, and I'm just going to make the assumption that this person's parents are involved with some form of mythic literal religion. And the problem with that is, unlike if they were involved in, let's say, Christian mysticism, and they were trying to have direct Christ-conscious experiences, that would be one thing. But most likely what happens when you become a believer in 
just the mythic literal story, then if you believe that story, you go to heaven. If you don't believe that story, if anybody tries to tempt you away from believing in that Christian story, that's the work of the devil. And if you listen to it, if you actually believe it, you're going to burn in hell forever. That's why it's so hard letting go of a mythic version of any religion taken in a fundamentalist way. If you let go of just the mythic version, the belief system, then you're going to have endless horrid reincarnations. You're going to go through rounds and rounds of hellacious purgatory, or you're going to be cast into hell for all eternity. And so that stops your capacity to be open and to explore other ways of looking at your religion. You're given one way, and if you question it, it's the devil. So if you question it, it's the devil operating in you. If your son or daughter starts questioning it, it's the devil operating in them. And so now you have a real problem because you have to convince your parents that you want to expand on a Christian or a spiritual understanding and you're not motivated by the devil. There is one of the saints in, in Christianity said, whatsoever is true by whomsoever it is said is from the Holy Spirit. And so that would mean if I find a truth in Buddhism, whatsoever is said by whomsoever it is said is from the Holy Spirit. So I can take that truth as coming from the Holy Spirit. And therefore, I'm not violating Christianity. I'm being moved by the Holy Spirit. And I'm finding that the Holy Spirit is moving me to look into broader and broader areas of Christianity, because I know Christianity applies to wider and wider areas than many people acknowledge right now. And I'm moved by the Holy Spirit to look into those wider and broader truths. So don't take this as some sort of demonic action. Take it as an action of the Holy Spirit and be happy for me. That's a, that's a beautiful answer, Ken. And it reminds me of uh, Amir Ahmad, the author of the book, My Islam. Amir um, used to work for me. And Amir came from Sudan, where he was exposed to a fundamentalist religion and a fundamentalist government. And so when Amir moved to Kuala Lumpur, which is where our office is based, and started working for me, he had a very right. skeptical view of anything to do with religion until he stumbled upon your work. And yeah. through that, he began to understand this idea that he did not have to discard his religion, but he would need to move towards more experiential aspects of it, waking up. He discovered Sufism, and rather than abandoning Islam, he went back into Islam but became a Sufi Muslim. And he wrote a beautiful book about it, which you have mentioned, called My yes. Islam. And that understanding gave Amir um, a perspective from which he could interpret the actions of ISIS in a very, very true but somewhat harsh fashion. The claim that ISIS is representing true Islam is absolutely false. They're representing a fundamentalist, ethnocentric, mythic, literal Islam. 
In other words, one of the lower stages of Islamic growing up. Whereas Amir had continued his growth all the way up to integral stages, and then also combining that with waking up, which the Sufis supply. And so he had a much, much broader idea of what a real Islam could be like. And that's exactly what I'm talking about when I say that we have people around the world that are discovering a true integral spirituality. And it can be integral Kabbalah, integral Hasidim, integral Sufism, integral Buddhism, integral Theravada, integral Vedanta, and so on. And it's just a matter of combining growing up with cleaning up and with waking up. And that just fills in a lot of the areas that were getting left out. And when those areas were getting left out, then you get crazy things like ISIS claiming that they're representing the one and only true version of Islam. That is a pure ethnocentric mythic literal stage of development. It has nothing to do with higher reaches of Islam at all. You know what it's a travesty, me? actually, and a real corruption of Muslim teachings. And okay. Amir was able to, to see this, and he's talked about it, and he's written about it, and he's uh, appeared on many uh, television shows and in many major magazines and newspapers. And he's doing a terrific job explaining it. And you know what you've made me realize, Ken? I rejected religion when I was 19 years old, and now I have a seven-year-old son, Hayden, and I've chosen to not raise him with religion, but instead expose him to different spiritual beliefs. But you've made me realize that there is nothing wrong with raising Hayden within our family's religion. Half our family is Lutheran, the other half is Hindu. It's simply, right. it's simply important to make sure that Hayden understands the importance of directly experiencing aspects of that religion and right. that we do not raise him on the mythic magic aspects of that religion, but exactly. on the rational pluralistic aspects and that we raise him to be more world centric in his views. Uh, exactly. And it, you know, it's fine when they're four or five or six years old and that's when they're actually themselves moving through a magic stage. And so what do they generally do if they're like a lot of children Saturday morning, they're in front of the TV or the computer watching, you know, Superman and superheroes and they all have superpowers and they can all fly and they can all see through walls and many of them can walk through walls and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's the way people at the magic stage look at religion. That's what they want out of it. They want to be able to walk on water. They want to be able to raise the dead. They want themselves to be able to overcome death. They want to magically be able to turn one loaf into enough food to feed thousands. They're taken by the magic part of religion. And all religions have those early magic parts. And it's fine for youngsters to start with that and to look at religion in that way, because that's the way they're going to look at it anyway. That's the only way they can think is magically. So let them think magic. At some point, they'll shift into mythic. Then all of a sudden, it won't just be, oh, me and my power and I'm superhero. 
But, oh, wait, how can I help others? How can I extend my understanding? If this is an ethnocentric way, but it's a move up in overall growth. So now they want to know how to expand it to a whole larger group. It's still a special group. It's still their in-group. And the other group is still sort of the bad guys. And that's still how they see things at that age. We're not introducing those ideas. That's just, you know, going with it. And then as they get into adolescence and they start to reach that stage of world-centric, then all of a sudden the spiritual teacher can start to be seen not as some, you know, um, magic or mythic figure that has all these superhero powers and um, and that's all they're good for is doing those sorts of superhero things. Now they're looked on as world teachers, as bearers of wisdom on how to live life with some sort of authenticity and satisfaction and fulfillment. And teachers start to be looked at then in that world-centric fashion not as wild mythic figures that descended from heaven with thousands of angels floating around them and all of that appropriate as that was when you were seven years old or 2,000 years ago, but looked at instead as a great, great world teacher, as somebody of enormous wisdom that we can learn from and that we can help in our own lives. And now, of course, if we're also combining this with an understanding of growing up and a little bit of cleaning up if necessary, then they're starting to get a complete package. Their whole growth and development, and you said you wanted to talk about education in a bit, that's one of the main things that we want to do. There are enormous numbers of potentials that human beings have that are not being educated. It's as if the educational systems aren't even aware of them, even though the evidence for them is overwhelming. But so that's how religion can continue to grow and develop with us as we continue to grow and develop. And so instead of being 25 or 30 and being forced to believe something that's only appropriate for three-year-olds, which is what's happening now, we can be at a stage of spiritual intelligence growing up and a stage of waking up that's in tune with our 25-year-old sensibilities. It's not against science. It works with science. It's not against modernity. It works with modernity. And so this is an entirely different way of approaching this kind of spirituality. And under those circumstances, it's fun letting the kids start out at those magic levels. The problem with those religions today is that we have adults 40 and 50 and 60 years old that still believe the stuff that five-year-olds were appropriate for. And that's horrifying. Thank you, Ken. So religion doesn't have to die out. Religion simply has to 
evolve. It has to move from mythic and magic stages to rational, pluralistic, later integral. And we can hold on to our religions while absolutely while simultaneously doing two things. Number one, expanding our worldview world from being ethnocentric to world-centric and cosmocentric, and at the same time, choosing direct experience. And especially exactly. if we are in a Western religion, bringing that into our belief system. As yeah, you very said, much so. Things such as Sufism, things such as meditation, mindfulness practices, yeah. and so on. Yeah. Beautifully said, yes. Ken. Let's go on to the next section, which is on personal growth. What okay. I wanted to ask you here, Ken, were a couple of questions that came in from listeners around human development and yeah. the nature of our growth as human beings. Now, the first question actually is from my son, Hayden. He's seven years old. And he asked me a very difficult question. He asked me, was Alexander the Great a good man or a bad man? You know, Alexander the Great, that figure from history who yep. conquered, conquered a large segment of the world. And to explain this to him, I decided to teach him aspects of what I learned from you. So we talked about, we talked about ethnocentric worldviews and right. world-centric worldviews and cosmocentric worldviews. And we spoke about how back then he may have been operating from an ethnocentric worldview. So his actions at that time could have been good for then, but not today. And then Hayden asked a follow-up question. I'm cosmocentric. I'm seven years old and I'm cosmocentric. Why, <laughs> why are they still people alive today who are ethnocentric? Don't they get it? <laughs> Smart boy. Well, that's exactly the problem. From almost the beginning of developmental psychology, and now we're talking about developmental growing up. We're not talking about meditative waking up. Meditation and the understanding of states of consciousness goes back 5,000 years. In some cases, with the earliest shamans, it's 50,000 years. But humans have understood those states of consciousness for a long time. And that's why virtually all of the world's great religions are aware of meditative states. And they have a whole path of waking up. But structures of consciousness, which are these more elaborate patterns of interpretation, like archaic, magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, integral, these are only discovered about a 100 years ago. And that's one of the reasons that you can't find them in any of the world's religions, because all the world's religions were already set by the time around a 100 years ago came around. So if these stages of growing up had been discovered 2,000 years ago, they would be in every major spiritual system the world over because they would recognize how important they are. But as it is, they're in none. So we have to actually bring them in ourselves and add them. But there's been research done on that. People like James Fowler uh, went through and took um, Christians in this case, and did lengthy questionnaires about what was their view of spirit, how did they think about it, how did they see it, what did it do, what was the purpose of it, etc. And of course, he found six to eight major stages of growing up in that spiritual understanding. Now, he wasn't studying waking up, he was studying growing up. But even then, how people move from one stage to the next is not well understood. 
it's not understood in spiritual intelligence. And remember, there's what we um, have called multiple intelligences, which means we have upwards of a dozen other kinds of intelligence. We have cognitive intelligence. We have moral intelligence. We have aesthetic intelligence. We have interpersonal intelligence, emotional intelligence, and so on. As different as those are, they all still move to the same basic six to eight major levels of development. But we still don't know exactly how. So there's been a lot of research on this and a lot of work done. But the fact is, it, we still don't have a great sense on exactly how this happens. Now, some things we know can help accelerate growing up. So even something, for example, like weightlifting. Now, that might seem odd, but you can sort of think of it as cross-training. The more different types of capacities that a human trains, then the faster all of their intelligences grow. And we saw this, for example, when we did a study with people doing meditation. One group did just meditation, and another group did meditation for half the time, and they lifted weights the other half. And then, according to their teachers, and the teachers didn't know which half was which half. So they didn't know who was doing what. But after six months, the teachers graded the progress of each of their students. And the students that got the highest scores on meditation were the ones that did meditation and weightlifting. They did better than the ones that spent their whole time meditating. So that's cross-training. And it's one of the sort of integral forms of growth that we've learned about. So the general idea is that the more of these intelligences we can spend some time on practicing, then the faster all of them will grow and develop. So that's what we're working on. And in the meantime, the question is exactly as that very smart son of yours put it. Why can't people see the obvious? And the answer is, we wish we knew more about that. That would really make a huge well, difference in the world. Well, I just before getting on this interview, I, I dropped off Hayden at his school bus so he could head off to school. And he told me to ask you one more question. Yeah. Is there a level beyond cosmocentricness? Yes. Now, the way, the same way that we took those four simple levels of egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to cosmocentric, and those were actually uh, summarized forms of the larger number of stages of archaic to magic to mythic to rational to pluralistic to integral. Well, the actual number of stages can vary depending on how much detail you gather and how much detail you're looking for. And so cosmocentric actually is a summary of some of the very, very highest levels of development that are just now even starting to become apparent. So for the average population at large, the highest level of growing up that we have is indeed integral. But there's evidence that less than one-tenth of one percent of the population has moved into even higher 
levels. Now, believe me, if you get to integral, that's plenty high uh, <laughs> to be. There's only 5% of the population at integral. So if you get to integral, you're doing just fine. But once you're there, you're going to be open to the yet next highest stage. Evolution doesn't stop. It just keeps going. So we see these three or four very rare higher stages. And once you get to integral, then you'll be open to these even higher stages. Of course, the first thing we want to work on is just getting more people to integral because, again, only 5% are there. And can integral... But we summarize all of those, integral and all of those higher levels by simply condensing those into cosmocentric. I see. But I could say, well, wait, yeah, there's cosmocentric one, cosmocentric two, cosmocentric three, and cosmocentric four, and each one is higher. Ken, could you give us an idea of the difference between cosmocentric one and, say, cosmocentric four? Sure. Cosmocentric one is um, where consciousness gets to the point that it includes all of the previous levels So it includes archaic, magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, and integral. And then it moves into the first of what we call third tier, these higher levels. And at this point, it includes um, a capacity for a type of oneness with all of the gross realm. That is a type of nature mysticism. When you move to the next higher level, You have all of the lower levels now still added, plus you add a higher level that includes the subtle. So that means things like the dream state. So you'll begin lucid dreaming. When you go to the third cosmocentric, you add causal, or what Aurobindo called overmind. And when you get to the last highest cosmocentric level, that Aurobindo called supermind, then that's an identity with all of the lower structures plus non-dual reality itself. And that is simply the highest state that we can find anywhere. There's no evidence of anything yet higher than that. But you can see that they just include capacities to bring states in along with these structures or levels. So Ken, that that is some really fascinating stuff. So for anyone who is on a personal growth journey, this is this is intriguing. And it's funny that this was a question that was generated by a seven-year-old. So at level one of cosmocentricness, you expand your consciousness to have an understanding and integral approach to all the lower levels. But yes. when you get to level two of cosmic centricness, you said there's a capacity for oneness, nature mysticism, subtle dream state, lucid dreaming. I think we, we, we all understand that. At level three, you lost me. You said overmind uh, and causal. Well, that's where that? you have permanent access to what in Sanskrit is called Turiya. And Turiya simply means the fourth. Now, the fourth is in relation to the five overall states that they're giving. So the five states for Tibetan Buddhism and Vedanta Hinduism, several others, is waking state, 
also known as the gross state, and then the dream state, also known as subtle, and then the deep formless state, also known as causal, and then the fourth state, Turiya. And it's just called that, Turiya, which is literally Sanskrit for fourth. And what it means is the pure, ever-present witness. So it's that in you right now that if you, let's say, if I ask you to become aware of yourself, describe yourself, you might say, oh, I'm this tall, I weigh this much, my hair is this color, um, I'm married, I have this many children, I work at this job, I like these books, I like these movies, that type of thing. So you're describing yourself and, and, and becoming aware of yourself and all of that. But then notice that there's actually another self. There's the self you're describing, the self you can see, the self that you're aware of as an object. And then there's the self that's doing the looking, the self that's doing the seeing, the self that's doing the witnessing. And the seer itself cannot be seen any more than the tongue could taste itself or an eye could see itself. The seer is the pure seen, is the pure seer. It's not anything seen. So as you start, and the same with the pure witness, it's just the witness of everything that's arising, but it's not identified with anything that's arising. So the attitude of the witness or the seer is, I see that mountain, but I am not that mountain. I have sensations, but I am not those sensations. I have feelings, but I'm not those feelings. I have thoughts, but I am not those thoughts. I am the pure witness of all of that. And I'm free of all of that because I'm not identified with any of it. So as you start to look for the seer or you start to look for the witness, you won't see anything in particular. If you see something, that's just another object, just another scene, something. Rather, all you'll tend to sense is a sense of vast freedom of release from identity with anything that you were previously identified with a radical freedom from all of it freedom from this body freedom from this mind freedom from anything that can be seen just pure radiant radical awareness not the contents of awareness just pure awareness itself, sometimes called the mirror mind. That's the fourth state. That's Turiya. It's also known as your true self or your real self or Purusha, Atman. And when that state becomes a permanent realization and you've already developed through all of those lower stages of growing up and so they're all present as well when you have the witness plus all of these levels of growing up that's overmind and then the last and final state for these meditative systems is called turiyatita and that simply means beyond the fourth or beyond the witness so what's beyond the witness what's beyond the witness is pure unity consciousness because the witness itself tends to drop out of existence and become one with everything witnessed 
So no longer are you standing back from everything. You're now literally one with everything. Now you no longer see the clouds. You are the clouds. You no longer feel the earth. You are the earth. You no longer see the sun. You are the sun. That's the supreme identity. That's pure enlightenment, pure awakening, pure non-dual unity consciousness. That state is present with all of the stages of growing up. That's supermind. Ken, the idea of supermind sounds, sounds beautiful. Are there people alive today who are in that state while still in a physical body? Right. Well, I believe there are. And at least I, I believe there are several people that have had at least fairly significant and ongoing experiences of supermind. Now, being permanently in supermind 24-7, that's going to be much, much rarer, particularly at this early point. But I believe there are several people, and I've, I've talked with a few, that have had experiences of supermind. And, of course, Orbindo believed that that was our, the next huge uh, leap in consciousness that we would have, although he felt that he himself never reached permanent supermind. Okay. Some people claim the mother did. Uh, I personally am not so sure about that. Um, but there are people that have had um, experiences um, of it. And I think those will become more and more uh, common. Ken, how do you spell Bendo for people who are looking to research this on Google? Oro Bindo. How, how do we spell his name? A-U-R-O-B-I-N-D-O. Got it. Okay. Wonderful. Now, Ken, A great evolutionary uh, sage. Ken, going on to the next question. This is from Shelton Vengis from McKinney, Texas. So his question is, how does my spiritual state affect the physical state? And how can I get my spiritual state to best work for me to manifest things in my physical state? So in other words, what he's talking about is very akin to the, the, the new age idea of the law of attraction. Is this something you believe in? Is this something that's possible? Yes, you have to be a little bit careful about this. Um, simply because of the tendency to confuse lower stages of growing up like magic with higher states of waking up. Uh, it's quite easy to confuse the two and to imagine that, you know, we have all sorts of amazing powers when if we do, they're much, much rarer than most people think. I mean, most people that believe in these powers, you know, think that, just hundreds of people a day are, are going through these. And almost nobody is, if anybody is. Certainly things like levitation and uh, walking through walls. But those were cities, powers, promised by the Transcendental Meditation Program. And they never delivered. So we have to be careful about it. But there is a degree of truth in it. And it has to do with what's generally called involution and evolution. And it has to do exactly with those major states that we were just talking about, and which were 
waking, dreaming, deep sleep, witnessing, Turiya, and pure unity consciousness. And another way to slightly reword those is to use the Christian terms matter, body, mind, soul, and spirit. And so I'll just use those terms since they're simpler. And the general idea is that moment to moment, spirit goes out of itself and steps down into soul. When it does that, it tends to forget that it's spirit and it just remembers that it's soul. And then soul tends to go out of itself and step down into mind. And when it does that, it tends to forget its soul and it thinks it's just mind. And then mind goes out of itself to produce living bodies. And when it does that, it forgets mind and there's just living bodies. And then finally, living bodies go out and produce just pure matter. And that would be something like the Big Bang. At the Big Bang, there was just matter. There were no living bodies. There were no conceptual minds. There were no realized souls. There was just matter. Quarks, subatomic particles, atoms. But over millions of years, those tended to move back and eventually gave rise to the first living cells, living bodies. So that was the move from matter up to body. And then bodies continued to get more and more complex, more and more unified and whole. And we went through kind of a whole tree of life of increasingly complex organisms all the way up to human beings. And each of these are still transcending and including their previous stage. So by the time we get to a human body, for example, that body still has in it literally all of the major particles that have been produced ever since the Big Bang. So this human body has in it quarks, subatomic particles like electrons, protons, and neutrons, it has atoms, it has molecules, it has cells. And when you get to cells, it has the photosynthetic biochemistry of the earliest plants. It has muscles of the earliest fish. It has a neural cord of the earliest amphibians. It has a reptilian brain stem from the earliest reptiles. It has a paleomammalian limbic system from early mammals. And then has a neocortex from things like porpoises and human beings. So we include all of evolution in our organisms. But that moved us up to about mind in the overall evolutionary component. And then human beings began developing through levels of mind. And so they went through stages of growing up, archaic, magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, and you can trace this through history. But they also developed through stages of waking up. They develop through gross, subtle, causal, turia, witnessing, and then pure enlightenment. And we can trace those. And so that was a return all the way to spirit. So involution is the move of spirit to soul, to mind, to body, to matter. And evolution is the return from matter to body, to mind, to soul, to spirit. And the traditions maintain that that circle is occurring moment to moment right now. And so we're as aware of that circle only as far as we have evolved back up it. 
So if we have evolved only to bodies, then as spirit goes out to soul, we don't remember that. As soul goes to mind, we don't remember that. As mind goes to body, ah, now we see that we're bodies and we can feel our bodies and we know we have bodies. We might be a, a deer or an antelope or something like that. And if we forget we're bodies and we just go to matter, then we're just atoms or molecules and sentient things. So as we start to evolve back, if we've evolved up to bodies, then we'll remember those levels. If we've evolved up into mind, then as spirit goes out to soul, we'll forget that. As soul comes into mind, we'll remember that, and we'll start remembering. We'll remember mind, and we'll remember our body, and we'll remember matter. If we take up meditation or contemplation or waking up, and we awaken our soul, our higher self, then we'll only be forgetting spirit. As soon as spirit steps down into soul, we'll know we're soul, and we'll exist as that radiant awareness, and we'll also be aware of our mind and our body and matter. And then finally, if we push through into enlightenment or awakening, then we'll remember spirit. We'll remember our true condition, our absolute and ultimate condition. So the idea is that in this involutionary downward movement, Plotinus called it efflux because it was spirit moving outward. And he called evolution reflux because it was spirit moving back. To itself. But each moment, moment to moment, this happens. And this is also what's described, for example, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. They're describing exactly these stages of efflux and reflux or involution and evolution. And so if we have harmonious notions and harmonious virtues in our soul, then those will tend to translate downward into mind and will tend to have a healthy and balanced mind. And if we continue to have a healthy and balanced mind, that will tend to translate downward into a healthy organic body. And we'll have relatively few sicknesses or illnesses. And then that transfers down, of course, into matter. If, though, we start to have something that goes wrong in the soul realm, then that will tend to translate downward into mental problems. And if those continue, that can translate downward into emotional problems, into organic illnesses, into heart diseases or cancer, and so on. So the traditions would have us use awareness and meditation to get in touch with these higher states so that they can then come downward in a harmonious uh, fashion. I believe that's not, you know, rigidly true, but I believe there is some truth to that. And that is certainly what individuals are talking about when they talk about those notions. So, Ken, let me ask you a more direct question, okay? Yeah. So, is it true then that our thoughts can influence our reality? Almost many personal growth authors from Esther Hicks to Deepak Chopra state that what we think about, what we dwell upon, what we focus our thought on, not immediately, but over time becomes our reality. Is there any truth in that? Yes. And you have to take it carefully so you don't get it mixed up with magic or things like the secret, because there is um, a large thing called infantile word magic, which is infants believe that 
you know, they're thinking, oh, I wish dad would die. And if he dies, then they think they did it. That magical thinking. A child will stick its head under a pillow. And because it can't see anybody, it thinks that nobody can see it either. More magical thinking. And we have to be very, very careful. Because that kind of magical thinking is very common when people get in to these alternative spiritual uh, practices. And so, in general, it's um, the case that soul and mental components do tend to translate downward. And over the long haul, they'll tend to influence those lower levels. And you can almost tell this just if you see somebody who is really grumpy and grouchy and, you know, and they just, you know, are, are kind of nasty psychologically, as sooner or later, they start to look like that. I mean, it just sort of translates downward into the body um, just because those emotions tend to trigger those muscles. And pretty soon those muscles are set And that's what we're looking like. There's evidence that, you know, watching, like, you can watch a a movie on Mother Teresa and your immune system will improve. Your markers will get better. Your immune system will get healthier just from watching that show. So those things do happen. They are real. We have evidence for them. But you can't just say, well, if I need that, I want to get this job. So I'll just think that I'm going to get that job and I'll get the job. Or I want to get that girl, so I'll just think and then, pow, I'll get the girl. It doesn't work like that. Thank you. So Ken. we have to be careful not to get too carried away with it. Ken, I want to, I, I want to ask, um, I, I think that's a wonderful summary of it. I want to ask you two more questions that came in from our listeners. So Michelle, okay. Michelle from California asks, do you know of any technologies that can help raise consciousness is there anything you recommend? Yes, um, there, there's already technology that can be used to alter brainwave patterns and states of consciousness. So one of them, for example, is known as binaural beat technology. And binaural beat is simply a machine or a CD that you can use with stereo headphones, and it'll play one frequency musical tone in one ear and a slightly different frequency tone in the other ear. And so it might play 100 cycles per second in the left ear and 106 cycles per second in the right ear. And the brain, trying to make sense of this, will take the average and the difference between those two. So the difference between those two would give six cycles. And then the average divided ear to ear would be three cycles. And so the brain will actually start producing three cycles per second brainwave patterns. Well, three cycles per second is a brainwave pattern known as delta. And delta is the brainwave pattern that the brain gets into with deep dreamless sleep is the same pattern that it gets into in deep formless states of meditation. And so using something like binaural beat technology, 
you can get into deep, formless states of meditation in a matter of five or 10 minutes. It will take meditators just working on their own, usually several months to be able to learn how to do that. So you can get binaural beats and um, it's B-I-N-A-U-R-A-L, binaural beat, B-E-A-T. And you can just Google that. There are several companies that sell them, uh, including Holosync and iAwake. And you can get those technologies. And um, at Integral Life, we do tend to recommend those. And so you can also buy those uh, off our site at uh, IntegralLife.com. There's another type of brain technology that's called transcranial stimulation. And that's T-R-A-N-S and then cranial, C-R-A-N-I-A-L, transcranial stimulation. And this is just a direct electric current applied through electric pads directly to your scalp. And here, if you wanted to go for that three-cycle per second delta brainwave, you just turn the machine to three for three cycles, and it'll directly deliver that to the brain, and the brain will synchronize and put itself in that delta brainwave state. So these technologies are already available. They're here now. They're fairly effective, and quite a few meditation masters uh, have tried them and found them useful. And like I say, we um, we find them useful and helpful, especially for people getting started, because it can take months to get into really deep, high consciousness states as you first start meditation. But using these technologies, you can do it in five or 10 minutes. So it's definitely worth looking into. Thank you, Ken. Appreciate that. So final question, Ken. Um, a customer from Australia asked this, what is the best and most powerful form of meditation to easily practice daily in order to reap the benefits of meditation? Probably one of the oldest and uh, still most widely used, and it's still widely used because it still works and it works well. And that's the fairly well-known practice of mindfulness. And what you do with mindfulness is you just get in a simple, meditative, comfortable position and breathe slowly in and out and then just become aware of your mental state as it flows. Just be aware of thoughts, images, sensations, feelings, whatever arises and passes through your mind and just be directly and immediately aware of it without condemnation, without judgment, without identification. Just be directly aware of whatever the present moment is that's going on in your mind stream. So it's just like videotaping your interiors or just like taking a series of snapshots of your interiors. You want to see them just as they are. You don't want to try to change them or make them better or try to feel happier about them. You just want to look at them directly as they are. So think of it again as videotaping your mind 
states or videotaping your interiors and just do that. And in order for it to work, you have to do it regularly. So you can do it for 20 to 30 minutes once or twice a day and do that for a month or two. And if you like it, if it seems to be working, then get a book on it or look up internet uh, material on it or go to some actual retreats that are taught by it and continue from there. But that's probably as good a place to start as any. Thank you, Ken. Thank you so much. And this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.